The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank David for his recent donation. If you are able to help keep the show on the air, then please go to achshow.com, click the banner at the top, or scroll down on the right-hand side and avail yourself of one of the books. So today is Thursday, and I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am indeed. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And it's been a couple of weeks since we spoke, actually, folks, because um, a couple of weeks ago we had a show in the can that we recorded uh, late last year, late December, uh, broadcast that. And then uh, last week, David John Oates, the founder of Reverse Speech, stepped in. So thank you, uh, David, for that. And of course, today uh, we're delighted to have Peter back on for his regular Thursday slot. And uh, some of you may be aware of this, but uh, there was a fire at the Parliament in Cape Town. And today's show is entitled The Real Story Behind the Burning of Parliament in Cape Town. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? There is a massive story behind all this, Andrew. It's, it's quite extraordinary. We started our year 2nd of January, early Sunday morning, 2nd of January, uh, Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services received a call. Smoke was seen coming out of the parliamentary buildings. Now, uh, the, the firefighters began arriving on the scene at Parliament. And by the way, Cape Town has the oldest Parliament in the Southern Hemisphere, dates back to 1853. Well, the firefighters arrived at the gates and the police were quite surprised because no fire alarm had been made from Parliament itself. And it was outside people climbing on the mountain who saw at sunrise, smoke coming out of Parliament. Now, it so happened that Parliament wasn't aware. There was no fire alarm had been sounded. The smoke detectors hadn't detected anything. Outsiders had seen the fire. I mean, can you imagine? So Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services soon had five fire engines. We call them uh, pumps uh, in South Africa. On the scene, I was a firefighter at uh, one time when I was working my way through uh, Theological College. And they deployed 36 firefighters on the scene. Well, very soon, this swelled to 300 firefighters and 70 fire engines and other related equipment at Parliament. The blaze continued to spread out of control throughout uh, the, the Sunday, which is the second day of January. And Cape Town City Member for Safety and Security, J.P. Smith, who I know, 
he reported the fire seemed to have started an office complex on the third floor. That's the top floor of the uh, parliamentary building, which also coincidentally happened to be the offices for the ANC or African National Congress members of parliament. Uh, that's very interesting because many of them reported later that they had left their laptops at Parliament in the offices over the weekend and they all incinerated, which is intriguing because a lot of evidence that our Zondo Commission into state capture, corruption and government has been looking for this evidence. And so it's like the dog ate my homework while the fire destroyed a lot of the evidence of the corruption hearings, which was about to start that very week, just coincidentally. Well, the fire must have been blazing for at least five hours. It must have started around midnight. And even though uh, the report of the fire only was given at about 5.30 in the morning at about sunrise, bear in mind, this is our summer season. So the sunrise is very early at, at this time. And it had spread so that by the time the fire brigade got there, the roof was on fire. The roof of the old assembly building collapsed. The main assembly chamber was also gutted and there were cracks showing in the walls. Well, the firefighters continued fighting the blaze throughout Sunday. On occasion, they had to retreat and say it's out of control. And the roof was into flames again after they had announced the fire was completely under control and extinguished on Monday and they'd withdrawn. The fire burst into flames again, the roof on Monday afternoon of the 3rd. Can you imagine? I, I was in a fire brigade. I find it impossible to understand how the fire brigade could have left the scene and declared everything uh, extinguished and a fire break out again. But that's how bad it was. Many officers were gutted severely by the fire. Great damage was caused to the new assembly wing. And the National Assembly Chamber, the main uh, part of Parliament, was completely and utterly irretrievably gutted, finished, gone. Well, about this time on the Monday, the police reported they'd taken a 49-year-old man suspect into custody, a black man who's known very well by the people in the whole area as a homeless man. You know, I mean, he, you know, lies in the street, uh, is drunk sometimes and is um, uh, begging for money and just living by his wits on the street. And this man suddenly became the prime suspect charged with terrorism and everything else and accused of causing a fire that had gutted the whole of Parliament. Well, most of us were highly suspect that a, a homeless man who looked totally confused by everything uh, at his arraignment on the Tuesday on the 4th uh, could have possibly pulled us off. But at any rate, they, they threw everything at him. Um, housebreaking, theft, arson, terrorism, uh, national key points, sabotage, subversion, I mean, you name it. And I mean, this guy... I don't even know if he can read and write. Uh, he looked completely uh, unable to comprehend what was going on around him. Um, it looked like a complete patsy being uh, conveniently picked up. Someone who was literally sleeping on the on the road uh, was accused of, of um, having done this. The Minister of Public Works, Patricia DeLille, who we call Cruella DeVille, uh, she was once mayor of Cape Town, uh, Back when I first got to know her in the 1990s, she was a senior leader of the Pan-African Congress. And Patricia DeLille was marching down the road after the St. James Massacre, chanting, one church, one bomb, one minister, one bullet, leading a group of people to the police station, Claremont, to demand the release 
of one of the terrorists uh, who had been uh, captured uh, for the uh, assault on the St. James Church of England, where he was the machine gunner who was uh, literally pouring fire into the congregation during the attack on 25th July 1995. Well, Patricia DeLille was one of the politicians, one of the senior leaders of the organization uh, for whom these terrorists were working and was demanding the release of this man who was being incarcerated for something as minor as machine gunning mothers and uh, children in a church during a worship service and chanting one church, one bomb, one minister, one bullet. So there's Patricia DeLille. She's now Minister of Public Works. And she confirmed the sprinkler system at Parliament had failed to operate because the valves had been closed. She couldn't offer an explanation as to who could have been responsible for this or how that could have happened. The sprinkler system wasn't working. The mayor of Cape Town, Gordon Hill Lewis, reported that while the parliamentary library had some smoke damage, the fire had not reached the library and the library at least was safe, which we're very grateful for. But he described the destruction of so much history as a national tragedy and, and is because Parliament uh, in Cape Town is a repository of thousands of artifacts and historic items and paintings and so much that's irreplaceable, actually. It is a national tragedy. Well, the fire had certainly been raging for quite a long time before being reported, but no fire alarms sounded, no smoke detectors uh, were activated, the sprinkler system didn't deploy, but it was worse than that. There were no security personnel in the entire parliamentary building at the time because it was a holiday weekend. The New Year holiday weekend was Sunday the 2nd of January, so the Saturday had been New Year's Day, and for the long weekend, they'd given all the Parliamentary Protection Service security personnel off because they said they were not willing to pay overtime to the workers over the New Year holiday weekend. I mean, this this sounds like a Monty Python script, but this is what they're saying to us. The fire was still blazing when Deputy President of the Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF, which is basically a bunch of Marxists, Floyd Shivambu announced the burning of Parliament is an opportunity for the relocation of Parliament to Gauteng, what we used to call Transvaal. Uh, up, he wants to go to Johannesburg or Pretoria, what they now call Swani. Uh, so Shivambu of the EFF demanded that the illogical Cape Town location should be reconsidered. Don't repair the buildings, he said. Rather move Parliament to Tswani in Gauteng. So the fire is still blazing and there's politicians jumping on a bandwagon to push their centralization agenda. A central and easily accessible area with administrative capitalists, uh, says Shivambu. Keeping Parliament in Cape Town is illogical. It's colonial. The pillar of the EFF is a one capital city. Now, this is an important point. At the Union of South Africa in 1910, when the Transvaal and Orange Free State, uh, Natal and the Cape were united in one Union of South Africa in 1910, it was determined that in keeping with the Reformation principles of decentralization, South Africa should have three capitals with the three branches of government geographically separated. And so the legislative capital would be Cape Town, the mother city, the site of parliament where we already had a parliament for a long time already, even from 1853. The judicial capital would be Bloemfontein, where our Supreme Court is located. 
and the executive capital would be Pretoria with the Union buildings. Now, Pretoria is 1,400 kilometers from Cape Town. Bloemfontein's 1,000 kilometers from Cape Town. So this was the reformation principle of the separation of powers geographically, and this is all based on how the Lord revealed his government in Isaiah, that the Lord is our king, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our judge, he will save us. And so God being perfect, he and incorruptible, he can centralize in himself the three branches of government, executive, judicial, and legislative. But man being sinful needs to decentralize and needs to separate the powers of government into checks and balances. And so that's why South Africa has three separate capitals. Pretoria is our executive capital, where the president has office. Cape Town's the legislative capital, where we have parliament. And Bloemfontein is our judicial capital, where we have our uh, Supreme Court. Now, this makes sense to those of us who believe in decentralization and reformation principles, but it has always been a uh, serious point of contention for the Marxists and the totalitarians and the so-called progressives and so on. Well, if, if Member of Parliament Umbesini Indlozi described the fire as beautiful, on social media exclaimed, whatever the cause, whatever the intentions, it is a beautiful fire. Indlozi declared the fire offered South Africa a valuable opportunity for a fresh start to move Parliament to Tswani. That's what they're wanting to call Pretoria these days. A fire that allows us to start from scratch, a clean slate. Don't renovate, turn it into a museum. Accept this gift of such a beautiful fire. This is a clean slate to start afresh in Tswani. All in capitals, exclamation mark, and so on. Well, another member of Parliament, Dean McPherson, responded, anyone who celebrates the burning down of Parliament does not deserve to be a member of Parliament. They are a national disgrace. And I think a lot of people agree with that. Well, out came an official statement from the EFF. The fire is still burning. Fire brigade still fighting it. And the official statement from the Economic Freedom Fighters, we call the EFF the Everything for Free Party, they said, if there's any appetite to curb wasteful government expenditure to cut all ties related to the colonial framework established by those who conquered this nation, this fire must serve as an opportunity to permanently relocate Parliament to Gauteng. Gauteng is what they're trying to call what used to be the Transvaal. Still quoting, this will allow government to be synchronized. The EFF has long called for Parliament to be relocated to the central location for political and cost-related reasons. I'm sure that's absolutely true. They want Parliament to move up to the center of the country, to Johannesburg or Pretoria, and they don't like Parliament being Cape Town. Well, we don't particularly like them being in Cape Town, or working for secession of the Cape of Good Hope uh, from the essay Titanic that's going down fast, uh, but that's another story. Well, one of our new opposition parties, the African Transformation Movement, ATM, called for a multi-party committee to investigate what they called the suspicious burning of parliament after the devastation of the historic site on Sunday. The ATM declared, everything is not as it seems. We have noted the burning of parliament with great suspicion. We trust that this is not another calculated ANC shenanigan to issue unnecessary so-called emergency tenders for refurbishments, private housing of the opening of Parliament, or an attempt to scupper the inevitable secret ballot of no confidence motion in the present. So the ATM noted that with COVID-19 infections declining, with Parliament planning to resume as normal, 
for the first time in 22 months, Parliament's been sidelined under this COVID cult uh, so-called emergency. Only hours away from viewing the state capture inquiry report that's been busy for years investigating the rampant corruption of government and the missing billions and trillions of rands, this fire was suspiciously convenient for the African National Congress ANC government, which obviously would prefer their failures in the corruption not to be subjected to scrutiny or debate in Parliament. And so with COVID-19 hospitalizations on the decline and the relaxation of the lockdown regulations, it's becoming clear that the normal operations of Parliament were about to resume when the President, Ramaphosa, and his executive would at last be held accountable for misgoverning the country. And it is very suspicious, still quoting from this opposition report, that this happens on the eve of Parliament receiving the state capture report where the President, the ANC, and the members of Parliament are all implicated. A multi-party team should be appointed as a matter of urgency to investigate, to get to the bottom of the strange, suspicious, for the first time in history occurrence. The ATM has no confidence in the National Intelligence Services, and this matter cannot be left in government hands to investigate. So that's all a quote from one opposition party uh, at the ATM. Well, the National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union, uh, which is one of the big unions, uh, their branch p- chairperson, Setembo Tembu, said, Parliament can't rely on the police alone. The police are only outside. We are supposed to have the Parliamentary Protection Service, the PPS, inside Parliament 25 hours a day. But the PPS, the Parliamentary Protection Service, were not in Parliament on the whole weekend because the government said they cannot pay overtime. Had the Personal Protection Service been deployed within Parliament during the weekend, they would have noticed the fire, been able to intervene and minimise the damage, which is doubtless true. I mean, here you've got a building that's worth billions and billions of rands and uh, you don't have anybody on on duty to care for the nation's parliament during a long weekend insane well the union said it had already been complaining uh, over health and safety concerns for years and even a 2018 report uh, recommendations had not been put into place yet in terms of fire safety Well, a member of parliament, opposition member of parliament, Samantha Graham of the DA, Democratic Alliance, also raised concerns about the health and safety compliance issues. And the parliamentary precinct had an independent assessment in 2020, uh, which had pointed out vast amounts of concerns. And there were 30 violations of fire and safety regulations in parliament, according to the 2020 report which, by the way, has not yet been publicly released, although members of Parliament have seen it. So the Minister for Public Works and Infrastructure, this Patricia DeLille, or Cruella DeLille as we call her, she says this report is still being processed. That's a report from 2020. Here we are in 2022. Now, the report, um, Fire at Parliamentary Complex, dated the 4th of January, uh, based on observations made by the firefighters, some of whom I know, Uh, states this. These are just some preliminary observations from firefighters who uh, had to give a preliminary report. This is not the investigation. This is just the firefighters report. The sprinklers were not activated. The sprinkler system was last serviced in 2017. That's five years ago. The first aid equipment was outdated. The emergency staircases were poorly ventilated. The 
the fire doors were propped open with hooks. Now, fire doors are meant in any major building, whether you're talking about hotels, hospitals, and so on, they have fire doors, and uh, even our missions have fire doors. And these fire doors are meant to be shut at all times. Uh, you only open them when you need to go through, and, and it's meant to be on a on a uh, spring so that it, it shuts firmly. Well, they had actually put in hooks to prop them open. Now, by the fire doors being propped open throughout Parliament, it meant that oxygen could get in, fires could spread, you couldn't starve or suffocate the fire because the fire doors were all propped open. So these are just things firefighters are noticing. The fire alarm only went off after the firefighters were already on the scene fighting the fire, something like six hours after the fire broke out. So what happened to fire alarms? The sprinkler control valve set on the southern facade of the old assembly building had not been activated. The sprinklers did not activate. The sprinklers were last serviced in 2017. And I've got the picture right in front of me of the ASIB approved service overhaul. Uh, last stamped year 2017 must be serviced again on February 2020. So it's more than, it's two years overdue for servicing. And uh, it's got on there the service scheduled February 2020, uh, the metallic uh, disc um, uh, taped on, uh, not taped on, wired on uh, to the valves. It obviously had not been serviced in years. Also quoting from the firefighter report, a major contributing factor to the excessive heat and smoke encountered throughout the building was the open latching of fire doors onto the fire escapes, staircases using small metal latches, which again, we've got pictures of from the fire brigade, absolutely shocking, breaching the whole purpose of fire doors, which would have contained and limited the spread of the fire. So Station Commander for Cape Town Fire and Rescue, J.J. Williams, said, during my walk around the affected areas, I found the National Assembly sprinkler valve was not serviced. Service date, February 2017. This needs to be done every three years. The valve appeared closed. No fire alarm was received by Cape Town Fire Services from the old or new National Assembly buildings. The HVAC, that's a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system, failed to shut down forcing city to isolate the whole electricity block. Lift safety trip did not operate. Some emergency staircases were overcome by smoke due to latching open of the fire doors. All of this highly irregular. I mean, these are just criminal. Now, when you bear in mind that they're trying to blame a homeless man for burning down parliament, how could he have organized for the sprinkler system to be switched off, for the security uh, people to be given the whole weekend off and nobody to be there in the building and the smoke detectors deactivate and all the rest. It's, it just, it, it stretches the credulity. So the fire began on the third, the top floor where the African National Congress members of Parliament have the offices. Interestingly enough, 10 months ago, mid-March 2021, a fire did break out for the first time in the history of Cape Town's Parliament in a committee venue in the old assembly wing of Parliament but it was confined to one room because the sprinkler system was activated. And the official fire investigation put forward that this had been electrical fault. But nevertheless, perhaps the arsonists looked at this and said, well, the sprinkler system must be deactivated because this is no good if you start a fire and it just it wipes it out in the room where it started and it can't go any further. That's, that's no good, which could explain why suddenly you had all fire doors and hooks uh, 
sprinkler system disabled, smoke detectors disabled, and a fire started at midnight so that uh, it had five or six hours to go before anyone would notice from the outside. Well, over the last 22 months of lockdown, Parliament has not operated. Copper pipes have been stolen, drug dealing has been reported in the parliamentary precinct, there have been break-ins and vandalism reported, even with the trashing of the opposition office chief whip uh, was vandalized. So parliamentary security has been failing dramatically. The Parliamentary Protection Service has not had a permanent head since July 2015, seven years ago. The incumbent leader and deputy were suspended over allegations of corruption and uh, so, and one of their contracts ran out while they've been on suspension and no one has replaced them. So the security system didn't even have a leader. Action South Africa, which is another opposition uh, group in parliament, uh, condemned the fire as a severe security failure. Action is as appalled by this act of arson that has devastated our country's parliament, along with must be regarded as a severe security failure. That's putting it mildly. With confirmation of the arrest of a suspect, it's clear that this was no accident. It's become difficult to view this tragedy in isolation with the tabling of the State Capture Commission of Inquiry into Corruption this very week or the unrest witnessed in July last year. You remember July last year we were reporting on the 9th of July, the communist chaos fueled with a looting spree and how this was an orchestrated uh, 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 attempt to subvert uh, so much of the country and bring massive chaos. Well, that was very well organized. Now, I would also link it to the 18th of April um, wildfires that destroyed the University of Cape Town library and a vast amount of uh, the Rhodes Trust forested area and uh, the Rhodes Memorial uh, Tea Garden and Chapel all burned up in an extremely suspicious, uh, obviously, arson fire well, multiple fires, April 18th last year. So, again, Action SA opposition party saying, in addition to this act of criminality, serious questions have to be asked about security and fire systems in our parliament. South Africa's parliament is a vital symbol of our constitutional democracy. It's intended to be a sacred place where lawmakers represent the will of the South African people and can hold the president and his cabinet to account. This act of arson, which has wreaked havoc in this national key point, cannot be reduced to just another fire. It's an act committed against the South African people. And so our primary focus should be to ensure that law enforcement agencies conduct their investigations rapidly and without any political interference, especially if this is found to be another consequence of ANC factional fights. Investigations into the July looting chaos that destroyed billions of rands worth of property and infrastructure and huge amounts of product, products were looted from uh, so many shops. About 200 shopping centers were destroyed and looted and vast amounts of destruction, arson and so on. And it was turned out later to be an ANC faction fight. One group of the ANC supporting the previous President Zuma and the present grouping who support the present ANC President Ramposa were accusing one another of organizing this. And there's no doubt that, that we don't know which ones caused it, but it was an ANC internal fight between one wing of the African National Congress, and another wing, who caused this um, massive destruction of property, unprecedented destruction of looting and arson that we saw in July last year. And so this is an interesting question saying, uh, is this 
another example of ANC factions fighting another ANC faction and a parliament suffering um, as collateral damage. So it was also speculated that the starting of the fire in the ANC members of parliament's offices on the third floor is very convenient for those facing investigation for corruption because many of their personal records have now been destroyed. This parliament in Cape Town is the oldest parliament in the Southern Hemisphere. Queen Victoria granted permission for the Cape Colony to establish parliament in 1853. And the first sittings were held in the governor's residence in Tonehouse. And the upper house was housed at first in the old Supreme Court buildings. And construction of the parliamentary buildings in Cape Town began on the 12th of May, 1875. The governor of the Cape, Henry Barclay, laid the cornerstone. And the first architect was Charles Freeman, uh, who was later replaced by Henry Greaves. And the stately building was finally opened in 1884. And the House of Assembly in, in Cape Town uh, and uh, what uh, was the upper house, which later became known as the Senate, uh, also. In 1920s, Parliament commissioned Sir Herbert Baker to build an extension, which included a new expanded chamber for the House of Assembly. And the old assembly chamber became the parliamentary dining room in which um, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan made his famous Winds of Change speech in 1960. And this whole stately parliament was also the scene of the King of England uh, and the whole royal family coming in the royal visit in 1947. Uh, a lot of history has taken place in there. There were further extensions to parliament in 1980s when the 1910 constitution was replaced with the 1983 tricameral uh, constitution. And the original parliamentary building was designed in the neoclassical style with features of Cape Dutch architecture, very distinctive. Well, as an interesting anecdote, in 1996, after I marched tens of thousands of people to Parliament to protest President Nelson Mandela's attempts to legalize abortion, pornography, perversion, and a whole lot of other evils, uh, I was summoned to meet the President at uh, the Hrutisku Estate, which Cecil Rhodes had uh, built and donated to the uh, people of the Cape for residence of the future prime ministers. And uh, that was where the president's um, residence officially was. So in 1996, I was summoned to meet President Nelson Mandela. And one of the first subjects that came up uh, while we were actually waiting for the president to come in uh, was the ANC's intention to relocate parliament to Midrand in Gauteng. And uh, there was, um, this was being brought up by uh, Carl Niehaus, the apostate dropout theological student who was Mandela's chief theological advisor. And uh, I question how could such an extraordinarily huge expense be justified in the light of Mandela's promises of housing for all? Even in the 1990s, the money needed to build an equivalent structure would cost billions of rands. The National Archive alone required a colossal amount of floor space, and I had the exact statistics at that time. Well, Carl Niehaus said, well, the present parliamentary buildings could be sold to help finance this. And to this I responded, no, actually they could not, because much of parliament sits on ground which was owned by the South African Freemasons. And an arrangement had been made back in the 1870s that the Cape government purchased the land from the Freemasons for one pound, one British pound, on the condition that if parliament was ever to be moved, the land and all the buildings on it would be sold back to the Freemasons for the same price, that is, 
one pound. And Coleman Nias was plainly shocked to hear this. But President Nelson Mandela sat totally impassive, as this was mentioned, because he plainly was well aware of this provision, because Nelson Mandela himself was a very senior Freemason. It's interesting, we have a Freemason a temple, place of worship on the grounds of the South African Parliament, the only place of worship on the Southern Parliamentary grounds. Well, I couldn't help but recall the 5th of November, 1605, the gunpowder plot to destroy the Palace of Westminster, both the House of Parliament and the House of Lords in London, thwarted with the arrest of Guy Fox and his associates. And to this day, the 5th of November is marked with bonfires and a familiar Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. To attack the parliament of any people is treason of the highest order. And the scriptures clear in Exodus 22 verse 6, if a fire breaks out and spreads, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, that, uh, that's certainly interesting what you said. I, I was unaware of Nelson Mandela being a very senior Freemason. Um, but uh, the, the other parallels, and this, this is really interesting, folks, because we all know the story about Building 7 on 9-11 wasn't hit by anything. Uh, and uh, Larry Silverstein said, let's pull it. Well, you can only pull a building if it's pre-wired with explosives. Uh, you go in and try and look that up now. And I'm three pages in on webcrawler.com. I dread to think the sort of results I was going to get on Google. Uh, Quant has all been hacked, basically, with every every sort of story dismissing any sort of conspiracy and things like that. They've done a real job on the Internet to try and hide truth. It's really quite astonishing. Um, but I found a Truth Seeker page. Um, what I haven't found what I was looking for. What I was actually looking for is I understand that there were a lot of legal documents in Building 7, uh, some of which related to the Enron scandal. And, of course, uh, he was good buddies, uh, the head of Enron, um, Kenny Boy, I think it was. Ken Lay, I think was his name. George Bush used to call him Kenny Boy. I may be wrong. My memory may be failing me, but I'm pretty sure that was that. Uh, and there was talk about all these uh, documents that they really liked to, you know, get out of the way shall we say were conveniently in that building and of course that building was brought down and it hadn't been hit by a plane and the BBC announced it had come down 20 minutes before it had with the uh, presenter who announced it having a live feed behind her of the thing still standing up so they got their um, you know were a little bit out of sync there from the script but um, yeah, I, I just draw, drew parallels with that, Peter, a good way to um, you know, bury documents that you don't want to see the light of day. Do you think that that's uh, what you've already touched on that? What are your thoughts? It's true. And uh, remember that famous quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, nothing in politics happens by accident. If it happens in politics, you can be sure it was planned that way, quote, unquote. And well, it's... <laughs> Nothing happens by accident. Here we are at the start of a new year, and the first item on the agenda is, is Parliament is reconvening for the first time in 22 months, and the first item is the corruption report, which implicates everyone from the president down the whole ANC Parliament, and uh, you've got vast amounts of uh, anger building throughout the country. We've got to deal with this, and... Uh, uh, you've also got a planned vote of no confidence in the president, which is the first opportunity I've gotten two years in doing such a thing. 
And lo and behold, Parliament burns down just on the eve of all this. Uh, how coincidental is that? And a homeless man caused it. I mean, who can believe this? Uh, I've been to Parliament many a time and the security is phenomenal. Uh, it's not easy to get over those outside gates just for starters, let alone inside the building. But uh, quite aside from all of that, why would a homeless man go right up to the top floor and start the fire uh, on the top floor? If you want to start a fire, why not start the bottom? And uh, it, again, how many locks have you got to go through to get up there? It's Everything just doesn't, it doesn't fit. And that's the whole um, Sherlock Holmes thing. He keeps working through scenarios until he finds all the pieces fit. I mean, that, that's a, a key thing of Arthur Conan Doyle. If the pieces don't fit, then you must go back and you must keep reworking because you've got the wrong uh, solution until all the pieces fit. And uh, it, it also uh, reminds one, remember in our session that we did on the murder of General George Patton, how so much of the evidence of, uh, of all the reports to do with the the accident, the vehicle accident of General Patton and his medical records, they all just disappeared. Like there was a massive fire uh, that destroyed all the military records <laughs> going back decades uh, in uh, America. And there was a whole lot of things that suddenly they couldn't find this and couldn't find that. And that report's missing and this disappeared and that witness died. And uh, when you get all of these things going together, just like how many of the eyewitnesses and people involved in the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, died violently. Uh, something like 37 witnesses, is it? Uh, uh, and people involved in, in that uh, were dead violently within the next 12 months. And it's just an incredible, it reminds you of the Clinton body count as well. I mean, how many people uh, connected with the Clintons, including their um, accountant and so on, you know, died in strange ways. and people committing suicide in the middle of a park with no grass or soil under their shoes, but only with um, carpet fabric and no keys in the pocket, how to even get there. And, uh, you know, think of Vince Foster and all of that sort of thing. So there's, there's so many things that are disturbing. You cannot accept the official version when there's so many holes and inconsistencies in it. And right here with the burning of Parliament, we don't yet know the full story, but we know enough to know that the officials who are giving us the official version are lying. Back to you, Andrew. Yeah, so I don't want to take you in too difficult, different of a direction, rather, Peter, but uh, I want to share this with you because this week, the World Economic Forum also, uh, it, Davos is linked to that, so it's the World Economic Forum, but they're referring to it as a Davos meeting as well. Um, they are having their meeting, I think it's an annual one. Uh, it seems to be taking place largely online, but uh, you go onto their website and they, they give you all these different updates. But to actually find an agenda, it, it, it just gets sort of swallowed up in, in some long, um, you know, stream, if you like. But on the Monday, this is literally, I think it started about half 11, finished at about half six. So it was seven hours. So in that period, they had uh, a speech by the president of China's President Xi. Then you had the prime minister of India, Modi. And then... In between them, you had um, a topic, COVID-19, what next? So sounds like they've got something that they're lining up for us there. And then after that, you had something about the fourth industrial revolution. 
And then to finish the day off, they had the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres, speaking. So that's a pretty hefty lineup for one day. And then the second day, Tuesday, uh, I saw a couple of the speakers, and it was the Prime Minister or President of Japan, whatever title that head has, I, I forget. And then Naftali Bennett, the Prime Minister of Israel. So, you know, um, it's a pretty strong lineup, not people that I particularly uh, admire in any way, but for the positions that they hold, it sort of gives you an indication that uh, I've always maintained the World Economic Forum are the real front group for the uh, Rothschild banking dynasty. And uh, they're controlling all these other things, and the Bilderberg Group is subservient to them. Uh, what are your thoughts on that lineup, and um, you know where we could be going next with this this pandemic, pandemic, whatever that we've seen around the world, Peter? Back to you. Yes, pandemic, scamdemic, indeed. And uh, this is a, we know that politicians and banksters love crises, and because. Through a crisis, they're able to accumulate more power to themselves, increase taxes and, and steal more freedoms from people. And uh, <clears throat> when, when you just look at the track record, bear in mind, what was it? 1960s, we're running out of fuel. There's going to be no fuel. In, by 1970s, there'll be no fuel at all. And all the cars are going to splutter in, in, into nothingness. I mean, some people may be old enough to remember that one. 1970s, I remember the main thing was a new ice age. It's going to be this total ice age, and it's going to be uh, just you're going to be ice skating on Lake Kariba, Victoria Falls is going to be frozen over, and you know, life's going to be extinguished because of a uh, new ice age. 1980s, if I remember right, it was acid rain was destroying the crops, and there's going to be no food left, and we're all going to die of starvation. And in 1990s, what was the ozone layer? Because some people used aerosol cans, the whole ozone layer is disappearing. We're all going to die of skin cancer. And uh, that was the 1990s. From the year 2000, it was global warming. And remember, all the ice is going to just melt. There's going to be no more ice at the North or South Poles. In fact, they even put a date in it. By 2013, there will not even be ice at the South Pole or the North Pole. And all the cities of the world uh, that are close to the ocean are going to be underwater, including Cape Town, London, so on, New York, just totally underwater. And, uh, you know, vast amounts of billions of people are going to die and so on because of uh, uh, global warming. And all of these crises failed to emerge but all of them resulted in more laws more taxes and less freedoms more government encroachment not just government but international powers this is how the united nations and the world health organization and unesco and all these groups have advanced is through these crises and every few years um, i've just jumped around with you know taking a decade at a time but of course there's been more than just that you know we've left out the bird flus and everything else that's thrown in in between they, they just never end with with crises. And, and right now you're about to have a new war with Russia over Ukraine and things like that. And all of these things that are being thrown at us to panic people. And if you are watching the lamestream mainstream media, if you are hypnotized by whatever the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation and the Communist News Network and Slime Magazine and Newspeak and Useless News and World Report and the Sunday Crimes are saying, if, if we are allowing ourselves to be distracted and actually not only distracted, but in many cases derailed uh, by what their disinformation and indoctrination industries are doing, uh, we'll not only miss the main thing of what's going on, uh, but we, we'll be too afraid to really live. 
And so it seems that that one of the goals of the disinformation media is to continually bombard you with so much to panic you. Uh, the amount of people we know who are too scared to go outdoors, too scared to uh, go to church, or too scared to be involved in their clubs and social activities or evangelize or travel anymore because of their fear of this pandemic. And uh, they are so paralyzed by this uh, pandemic propaganda uh, paranoia that they're no longer able to live normally and and also uh, not only accept government encroachment on all their freedoms, but in fact often berate friends, family, neighbors uh, for not adhering to the masquerade madness or lockdown lunacy or salvation by vaccination or whatever it is that, that is being pushed at that time. We, we're missing the key things. They are advancing a communist agenda in the name of fighting a virus. And what is communism? Communism is government by committee. And that's what Soviet means, as in a union of Soviet socialist republics, union of committee-run socialist republics. Uh, communism is government by committee. I mean, that's what Soviet means. The French Revolution was a committee. The Committee of Public Safety was the name. And uh, so <laughs> Maximilian Robespierre was the chairman of the Committee for Public Safety. What a nice, innocuous name. And what did the Committee for Public Safety do? Well, determined who got guillotined that day, amongst other things. Uh, 40,000 people lost their heads in the guillotine. 300,000 were executed by firing squad, all organized by the Committee for Public Safety. And now here we are in a situation where in the name of fighting a virus, the government decides who can work, when you can work, how you can work, where you can work, and you need papers for internal travel. Show me your papers, which is, this is what communism was. And now you've got communist agenda being advanced, the name of fighting a virus, and they're able to encroach on our freedoms the way never before seen, including closing down churches. The fact that more churches have been closed down in the name of fighting this virus over the last two years, then Stalin and Mao Zedong ever managed to close through the whole of the Cold War. I mean, it's just staggering how many churches have willingly allowed themselves to be silenced, sidelined, shut down even, uh, in the name of fighting a virus. And for the communists, this, this scamdemic, pandemic from the Wuhan Health Organization must be uh, the greatest gift they've ever gotten from Satan, because have they ever been able to advance the cause of globalist centralized control and encroachment on freedoms and shackling and hamstringing and restricting the church. I don't think in the history of the world we have seen so much advance in a globalist Illuminati agenda, the Sabbatean agenda of Sabbatee, Zevi and uh, Jacob Frank and the Illuminati as we have seen in the last two months in the name of fighting a virus. So if people can just see the big picture, we if we just look back, over the last century or so, it's obvious governments have been lying to us on a colossal level. And you know this because when governments say that this must be wrapped up and this must be under seal for 30 years, 60 years, 75 years or more, as in the case of the Martin Luther King files or Operation Keel Hall or the Lusitania files, or you can name it, everything uh, all over the place. Many of these things get disappeared even after that. How much that... Governments restrict. Now, if those files prove that they were heroes and doing something essential to survival, well, why would they be sealed? They'd be out there and they'd be wanting everyone to read them. But these files are sealed to cover up lies, deception operations, and to basically provide cover for the guilty, uh, guilty of colossal crimes when they go to this sort of level. So if we can see the big picture, we know we're being lied to. 
does anybody honestly really believe that all of this is being done because our governments care about our health and welfare? Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Excellent analysis there. Just to let you know, we've got about four minutes left. Um, but uh, you talked about the fear porn we've been subjected to. Now I'm going to throw, this is from the Daily Mail um, about 11 o'clock in the morning UK time Wednesday when Peter and I record this. So the headlines will be different now when you, if you go and look. But um, Boris Johnson is sent to declare today that Plan B COVID passes and working from home orders will be scrapped next Wednesday as he fights for his political life over Partygate scandal. So, um, yeah, I, I honestly think Boris Johnson is not a favourite of mine, but they've been jumping all over the fact he had a garden party when we were in lockdown and he said it was a working thing and they're desperate for him to go. And I think that he was told to put us in some sort of lockdown, uh, England at least, uh, over Christmas, and he refused to do it. And this is their revenge, and they want him out, basically. So I think that there's oh, some my. sort of internal war there. So he's now going the other way and trying to get people like me to support him by really getting rid of these co nonsensical COVID restrictions. And then, of course, you've got other MPs in the Conservative Party that are planning to, to write letters to call for his resignation and all that, that are all going to be, you know, paid and bought and paid for by the likes of the World Economic Forum that we mentioned earlier. So that's what I think is going on. So at the moment, I support Boris. And uh, I hate to say so, but it looks like he's standing up to these people. That's the way I would interpret it and then the other thing um vladimir putin is now plotting a full-scale invasion british defense chiefs and white house warn ukraine is facing a nightmare scenario as russian troops mass along border and armored divisions head to belarus well folks if you remember and i heard this on another show so it's not my analysis i thank whoever did it um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Russia were going to put these uh, missiles in Cuba. And America didn't want that. That was right on their doorstep. We're not having that. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. NATO are wanting to put bases with weapons on Ukraine's border right next to Russia. And the Russians said, well, we're not having that. And they're saying, well, we're going to do it anyway. And so the, the, the guilty party here are NATO and the USA, not Putin. But uh, I know I've only got a couple of minutes left, Peter, but uh, your thoughts on the Boris Johnson situation and the Ukraine-NATO-US uh, <laughs> situation back to you. Yes, it is interesting. Um, they do find ways of punishing you. Their people can do all kinds of breaches of the COVID protocols and so on without a problem. Uh, but uh, they've always got enough on you that if you step out of line, they can bring pressure to be. That's what Jeffrey Epstein was busy with, of course. You know, bring people in, fill them in compromising situations and then you can always keep them in line later if they ever stray from the narrative or don't vote the way you want and so on. So we know what's going on. They are trying to manipulate. The issue is never the issue. The issue is the revolution. And so whatever they tell you the issue is, you know that's not the real issue. The real issue is they're trying to advance their revolutionary agenda, such as Agenda 21 depopulation of the population, things like this, advancing the communist agenda, the Marxist manifesto, and as we've discussed before, Sabatine, Zevi's, and Jacob Frank's goals, the Illuminati's goals, which are almost indistinguishable from that of the Marxist manifesto, we know that this is actually at its root. It's occultic, it's satanic, it comes to the pit of hell, and as Christians, we need the full armor of God and we know that truth is more powerful than error and light is more powerful than darkness. We must fight the good fight of faith. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, folks, don't forget, Peter does a hell of a lot of work as a missionary. He has his church in South Africa. has all these different websites that you can find in our show posts um, on achshow.com. 
please visit them. Please support his work where you can. And Peter, on that note, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za or peter at frontline.org.za for the Americans. And uh, mission uh, frontlinemissionsa.org is our website. So visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Be glad to hear from you. Also on, on Facebook, uh, if they haven't deplatformed us by then, but you can find Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship on Facebook and love to communicate with you on whatever platform you're able. Thank you. God bless. Thank you so much, Peter. And as I said, folks, there are other websites. We can't go to them all on air because it's not the sort of thing you're going to be able to write down. But uh, the Frontline Mission one is Peter's main site. But I have others listed for Peter as well. So please check all of those out. And on that note, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a program entitled The Real Story Behind the Burning of Parliament in Cape Town. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.